0: Our sermon today will be taken from John 12, verses 1 to 11. This is the Word of God. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he, ha- who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Thus says the Lord.
1: Thank you, Andita. Most, if not all of us, are instinctively suspicious to someone who asks us to submit to them, to someone who has power over us, because we all know what it feels like to trust someone, give them power over us, and they abuse it. As individuals, we instinctively know this. Most of us knows what it feels like to be betrayed by someone who had power over us, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse or a co or a boss, family, or a friend, even spiritual leaders. I know more examples about pastors abusing uh, their spiritual authority than I can remember. Verbally, emotionally, financially. But we also have the suspicion not only as individuals, but as a society, as a culture, don't we? We, we felt disappointed by people in power in the past. That's why in the late 90s, students, artists, journalists, Various women groups rallied together to overthrow a particular president that they thought had too much power for too long. They didn't want that. They wanted democracy. But what's interesting, even after the overthrow, a book called Challenging Authoritarianism in Southeast Asia, which came out seven years after uh, the event, records that suspicion to authority never decreased. It never died down. It actually increased. Because in this newfound era of democracy, corruption rates actually increased. And people in political authority still abuse their power. When someone has too much power, whether a boss or family or friend, or if someone has too much power over us as a community, whether political leader or religious leader, as individuals and as a society, we have this instinctive suspect that wells up within us, don't we? And here comes along Jesus claiming to be the king of kings, asking us to give unto him a kind of power and authority over our lives that no one has ever asked before. Here comes Jesus asking for an allegiance that is deeper than anyone has ever asked because his commands is not just to obey him externally, but to love him truly internally. You see, it's deeper He's asking for an allegiance broader than anyone has ever asked before because it extends to every aspect of our life, not just the public, but the private. And he asks for an allegiance lengthier than anyone has ever asked before because there is no end to his term of rule over our lives. So what do people in a culture that is suspect of authority instinctively say? Thanks, but no thanks. Yeah, some of us give him some Um, um, power over our lives. Some of us give him no power over our lives. Some Some of us give him more power over our lives than others. But I bet even the most mature Christians in this room can look at their lives with honest lenses and say, there's actually still so many parts of my life that I have not given over to him, that I have not entrusted him with, that I have not given power over. And that's what our passage is about today. We see a power struggle between what it is Jesus the King requires of us and how we resist it. And I hope that after we study the passage deeper, we'll see not only how to stop resisting him, but maybe even more importantly, why it is we should stop resisting him. Three things I want to point out about Jesus' kingship. One, it brings true resurrection. Two, it goes beyond moralism. And three, it's experience on the cross. Jesus' kingship brings true resurrection, goes beyond moralism, an experience on the cross. Point one, Jesus' kingship brings true resurrection. Look at verse one of our passage. It reminds us of the context of the whole story. In one verse, John, the author, summarizes everything that happened in chapter 11, one chapter before our chapter today. Verse one, here's a summary. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus has raised from the dead. This is chapter 11 in one verse. Six days before the Passover, Jesus went to Bethany, performed an astounding miracle, and he raised Lazarus, who was truly dead, to true life. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on the logic of why it's actually very reasonable for us to believe that this miracle actually happened. If you want to know more about that, listen to the sermon on John chapter 11, verse 38 to 57 on SoundCloud. But for now, let me just move forward with the focus of our text today. What happened after the resurrection? Look at the picture painted here by John. After the resurrection, there's a beautiful picture of Jesus' kingly authority and power over people's lives. Look at verse 2. So they, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Now various commentaries on John agree that this dinner was actually originally prepared for Lazarus's burial burial for his funeral it was prepared for people to mourn Lazarus's death but when confronted by Jesus's presence what may have begun as a funeral banquet for Lazarus one commentary says has been transformed into a celebratory feast for Jesus in other words Jesus turned a sad dinner into a joyful feast what a great picture of what a raised from the dead life that a Christian should be. What a a great picture of, of a celebratory feast for Jesus. Just look at this picture. Look at Lazarus, the one who was raised from the dead. What was he doing? He was reclining with Jesus at the table. He was adoring him. He was entranced by him. He was taken by his glory and his majesty. Of course he was. The man gave him life. Look at Martha. What's she doing? She's serving Jesus. Right? And look at Mary. What's Mary doing? She's anointing Jesus with ointments, not just any ordinary ointment. Judah says in verse 5 it's worth 300 denarii, which is equal to approximately one year of wages of the average worker of the time. One year of your salary poured on Jesus' feet. This was all the family savings, or as some commentary says, all the inheritance from their parents that was passed down to this family invested not in real estate or business like maybe for many of us but on precious ointment she poured it all out on jesus and offered it to him as an offering now i know verse 3 says that mary anointed jesus's feet but what mary did most likely was anoint jesus's whole body this is important Um, how do we know that Mary anointed his whole body not just the feet? Because if you read Matthew and Mark, the other two Gospels, um, out of the four Gospels in the New Testament, it records the same story. And in Matthew and Mark, it records that Mary was actually pouring pouring the ointment on Jesus' head, not on Jesus' feet. So why is John here recording Jesus' feet? Which one is it, the head or the feet? Well, most likely it covered his whole body, all the way from the head, all the way down to the feet. Affirmed... By the amount of oil Mary used in verse 3. One pound of it. A pound is about 500 grams, which is the average size of an oil bottle you'd find in Hero. Now, this is significant. To know that Mary covered his whole body. Because covering one's whole body with fragrant oil is a practice done in the ancient Near East to anoint a king unto a position of power as king. You're anointing somebody into a position of authority as a king. That's what Mary was doing. So look at this picture. Look at this scene in your head again. Jesus, the one who claims to be God throughout the book of John, has authenticated his power and glory in raising Lazarus from the dead, that he truly is God of God, that he has power over death and life. And this family, who was completely overtaken by his glory, was moved to action and to worship. By the way, this is what it means to be a Christian. See, the picture most people have about Christianity is that it's a group of people who are moved by a set of rules. And this picture is killing the church. Look at this feast. The people in this banquet was not moved by a set of rules. Martha wasn't serving Jesus because she was merely following rules. Lazarus wasn't beholding Jesus because it's what he was supposed to do. Mary didn't pour out her whole bank account on Jesus' feet because she wanted to check it off a list. What happened? They encountered Jesus' resurrection power and their old way of life was shattered. You know, almost every time the glory of God appears in the Old Testament, an earthquake happens. When God appeared on Mount Sinai, what happened? His glory consumed the mountain and shook it. When God's glory appeared in the Holy of Holies in Isaiah chapter 6 in the temple, what happened? An earthquake happened. They were shook by God's glory. That's what happened to Lazarus' family. They've encountered the resurrecting glory of the Lord, and it shook them. Did you know, Christian, that's what happened to you when you received Christ as Lord and Savior? What did the prophet Isaiah say? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. The Christian does not walk this life in obedience to him because of mere rules. You walk in obedience of him because you've been confronted with the weight of glory that is so heavy, it shakes you. It moves you. Being a Christian means God is no longer just a concept to you but a glorious and weighty presence which has caused you to wake up from your deathly slumber and to everlasting life, celebrating him, serving him like Martha, adoring him like Lazarus, and using our most precious treasures to bless him like Mary because a God quake happened in your life. That's what it means to be a Christian. How are you doing? Oh, how the Bible's been boiled down to moralism a kind of religiosity that's disconnected to the glory of God. Just follow the rules. Just act right. Just look good. It's been tamed. It's been dulled into some sort of list of prohibitions, which is what Judas did. He followed the rules without at all being interested in Jesus and or in his glory. Look at verse 4 to 5. Judas kind of abruptly entered into this beautiful scene of what a Christian life should be like, and he sort of stopped the music. Look at verse 4 to 5. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, there's a legitimate pragmatic argument here that, re- that deserves more attention later in the second point, but for now, let's move forward with the narrator's explanation about Judas's motives. He wasn't moved by jesus glory he wasn't even moved by the poor why what was his motive look at verse six he said this not because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it the narrator here gives insight john gives insight to Judas' heart what was glorious to judas what was weighted to him what shook and moved him was not Jesus' majesty wasn't even the poor it was money he was the CFO of the group, and a corrupt one at that. Less money in the offering bag means less money for him. You see, on the outside, he looked good. He sounded moral and religious. On the outside, Judas was saying all the right things, following all the right rules. Mary, what are you doing? You could have sold that and given it to the poor, but inside, there was no God quake. Inside, there was no being captivated by the glory of Christ. It was empty. Here's what the Bible is saying. There may be people who externally look obedient, come to church on time, go to community group, say all the right things, but inside they have actually never encountered nor have they been ever moved by the glory of Christ. Is that not what Jesus said to the Pharisees? On the outside, you look like whitewashed tombs, but on the inside, you're dead. Dead bones, speaking of the Pharisees, look at verse ten to eleven. What did they do? They secretly plotted to kill Lazarus. Why? Because every breath and step that Lazarus would take from then out from then out, from there on out is a testimony to jesus divinity and kingship, and the more people saw lazarus 's life, the more people saw what he would do and The steps he would take and the movements he would make and the breath he would breathe, the more they saw that, the more it is of a testimony to Jesus' divinity and authority. And when that happens, people were leaving the Pharisees and going to Jesus. Jesus, in other words, was gaining more power. You see the power struggle theme here? They didn't want that. They wanted power for themselves. See, externally, Judas sounded selfless. Externally, the Pharisees are people who look like they're very religious and very moral wore all the right light clothes, had all the right Sunday school lingo. Externally, they were doing all the right things. But Christianity asks us to see beyond the external, beyond the moral act and to the heart. In other words, Christianity says it's not enough just to do good things. Your act of goodness must be motivated by the glory and the majesty of Christ. Christ. It must be motivated by a glory that has overpowered you. It moves you. It shakes you. And gives him an allegiance that is unbelievably deep, broad, and eternal. Let me say it in another way. In other words, the Christian's act of goodness and philanthropy, does he mean serving the poor or serving others? If it's not motivated by God's glory, if it's not because an external, all-consuming majesty has quaked you, it's not enough. It's not enough. But why not? Why isn't it enough for me just to do good, just because I internally want to do good? Let's go to the second point. Jesus' kingship goes beyond moralism. Look at how Jesus responds to Judas in verse 7. He told Judas, leave Mary alone. Let her anoint me with this expensive oil. Let her pour it all out on me. Now, face value, it seems like Jesus didn't care for the poor. He didn't didn't care at all, but that's not the case. Why, then, did Jesus uh, tell Judas to leave Mary alone? The reason is in verse 8. Leave Mary alone, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Leave Mary alone, for the poor you will always have with you. Notice, read it carefully, Jesus did not say, leave Mary alone, for the poor isn't important. Jesus didn't say, leave Mary alone, for the poor isn't our problem. Read it again carefully. Notice, he actually is saying the exact opposite. He said, leave Mary alone, for the poor you will always have with you. In other words, you will always have an opportunity to serve the poor. You will always have an opportunity to care for the poor. In other words, as long as they're with you, serve them. Care for them. You're going to perform this act of philanthropy, this good social deed of serving the poor for the rest of your life. That's the expectation Jesus has for the Christian. How are you doing? In other words, he said, I'm not neglecting the poor. So then why did Jesus let Judas cringe a bit when Mary poured all this expensive oil out onto him? Well, he's trying to reveal to Judas, and to everyone else there, and to us today, that if one's desire to do good, to serve the poor, for philanthropy, or his desire for social service, if it's disconnected from your acknowledging of Jesus' kingly authority, if if our act of good is disconnected from an external power and glory that has risen upon you and moved you, it's not enough. Why? I'll tell you why. Because at best, at best, if you're not controlled by God's glory, what will motivate you to do good, what will motivate you to sacrifice for the poor, what will motivate you to do acts of philanthropy, at best, is your own good conscience and your inner sense of goodness. Well, what's so wrong with that? Why can't I just do good? Because I'm internally moved to do good. Why isn't being motivated by my conscience good enough? Three three reasons. There's much more. Let me just talk about three. If you do that, one, your good deeds will be irregular and inconsistent. Two, your good deeds might cause your ego to inflate. Three, your good deeds won't actually meet people's need. Your good deeds will be irregular and inconsistent. Your good deeds will inflate you. And lastly, your good deeds won't meet people's actual needs. Let's briefly talk about them. One, your good deeds will be irregular and inconsistent. Look, if your primary motivation to do good is motivated by your internal sense of goodness, you must ask yourself, what happens when that internal sense of goodness disappears? Oh, come on. You know how fickle they are. You do. You do. They come and go. You want to sacrifice for your wife and you want to love them unconditionally like Christ loved the church? How are you doing? <laughs> you, you want to truly love and, and be all-inclusive in your friendships and, and not just hang out with people who you're comfortable with and not just hang out with people who make you look cool? How consistent have you been with that? You want to have a kind of security that isn't so controlled by the culture's view on body image? You want your emotions to not be so dependent on what the scale says and what the mirror says? How consistent has that been? We're fickle. That's the whole point behind our justice system. Because we know how fickle our inner sense of good can be. The justice system is in place because man has deemed that we need protection from our own fickle inner sense of goodness. If you're a Christian and you've been a Christian here longer for a year, maybe a few months even, I bet that at one point or another, you've probably joined an accountability group. I'm in one right now. We're supposed to be reading through the book of Jeremiah, which I'm terribly behind on. <sighs> but Some of you might be in prayer accountability groups or, or um, you know, scripture reading accountability groups or, or maybe to help you fight pornography online accountability groups. Why do you do that? Why do you join in accountability? Because you know you can't just rely on an inner sense of goodness to do that. If you're not a Christian, why does alcohol, alcoholic anonymous exist? For accountability. Because you know you can't rely on your own inner sense of goodness. We know. We know. If left merely to our internal sense of goodness, it's fickle, it's erratic. We need something more. And you know what? If your commitment to philanthropy, if your good deeds are primarily motivated by your own internal sense of goodness and consciousness. It'll be short-lived, it'll be irregular, it'll be erratic, and it'll be fickle. It won't be enough. What we need is to have something greater and weightier that comes from outside of us, that moves us. For the love of Christ compels me, Paul says, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who loved me and gave his life for me. Two, if your good deeds are motivated primarily by your internal sense of goodness, it might inflate you. I mean, if your act of goodness is sourced from within you, if the primary reason for you performing it is found from within you, then who gets the applause? Who gets the credit for it? Now, you may say, no, no, please, it was just my duty. But at the end of the day, who still gets the credit? Who gets thanks? No one else but you. Because the the act was a result of your inner sense of goodness. Now, okay, you might be able to handle some applauses, but if the applauses and the cheers get loud enough, if they keep going for long enough, can you really stop yourself from swelling up? We can't even stop ourselves from looking at a mirror every time we pass by it in the mall. Don't act like you don't do it. You really think you have what it takes to handle all that praise. And even if, even if you have the inner tenacity to remain humble, even when you get all that praise, who then gets praised for all that humility? <laughs> you do. Well done for being humble even after receiving all this praise. If your inner sense of goodness, if your drive for good deeds is is found in yourself, even if you have the tenacity to stay humble, at the end of the day, there's no other place that glory goes to but to you. Three, if your good deeds are motivated primarily by your internal sense of goodness, your good deeds won't ultimately be good. What do I mean? Look, if, if you believe that Jesus is truly who he claims to be, if he is the true source of peace and comfort and joy and happiness, if that's really true to you, then your act of goodness, your act of philanthropy and service to society can never be disconnected to him, because if it is, then you'd be robbing people from the true source of joy and peace and comfort and happiness. Yes, you might improve people's living standards, and you might improve the quality of life in your city, but if that's all there is to it, at best, that's secularism. You see, secularism says ultimate joy and security can be found in earthly comforts, not in Christ. Secularism says joy and security can be found in worldly things, not in Christ. Secularism says joy and security can be found in longevity of health and life, not in Christ. If your act of goodness is disconnected from Christ, at best you'd launch people straight into the heart of secularism. What is true joy? What is Christian joy, Paul says, Philippians, 4, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. You know how to be brought low? And I know how to abound in and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I'm not saying you have to preach the gospel every time you give money to the poor. No. All I'm saying, if your act of philanthropy is disconnected from your all-consuming love for Christ and his glory, you won't even have him in the framework of your mind as you help people's earthly needs. You won't. And at best, you'll give them momentary joys of secularism. And all they would know is peace and shalom from worldly possessions. That's not what God wants. That's not enough. He's more interested in true joy and holiness, not in an increased standard of living. Look at Jesus' life. Look at the lives of all the apostles and his early followers. So there it is. If your good deeds are motivated merely by your inner sense of goodness, disconnected from the glory of Christ, it will be fickle and irregular. It will bring glory to yourself, not to God. And at best, it will lead people to the false promise of secularism. To this, Jesus tells Judas, he tells us, it's not enough. It's not enough. I want you. He says to be fully abandoned for me and let my weight of glory, my kingly authority over you, my constant commands, not your wavering inner sense of goodness, be the basis of your good deeds and your philanthropy. Because if you're doing it as obedience to me, one, you'll have a motivation to keep doing it even when you don't feel like it. You see? Two, If you're doing it for me, you're not going to give credit to yourself. Just like the moon can't gloat for giving light to the world, neither can the Christian gloat for living their life here on earth as a representation of Christ. Three, you'll offer far more than just worldly comforts. You'd actually be leading people to the source of joy and comfort, teaching a peace and a shalom despite and beyond their worldly circumstances. To Judas and to us today, Jesus says, you want this? Then you must have a God quake. He must be more than just a concept to you, but a weight of glory that moves you, that shakes you, because you've been resurrected from your deadly slumber. That's the only way you'll live a life of service to the world that is consistent steadfast god glorifying all the while offering them something more than just what the world can offer but the source of joy and stuff and you'll do that not as a begrudging follower of christ but you'll serve him like martha you'll adore him like lazarus and you'll pour all his all your wishes upon his feet like mary as a participant of a joyful celebratory feast you want that do you now a lot of people here are saying i do I really, really, I really do want that. My whole life, I've been going to church. My whole life, I've been doing religious things, going to other religious institutions. My whole life, I've been doing it, but for some reason, all these years, if I really look at my life, God is just a concept to me. He's a light concept that's, it's just, it's not a weight of glory that's overtaken me. I want to know what that's like. I want to know to be moved by him that way. And right now, if, if that's where you are, you might be frustrated because up to this point in the sermon, you still don't see it. <laughs> and you start wondering, is there something internally wrong with me? Is there something I'm missing on the inside? It brings us to our last point. His kingship is experienced on the cross. Look, that's our problem. That's our problem. This whole time, all these years, you've been too busy looking on the inside. You've been too busy looking internally. You've been too busy trying to find it from inside of you. You can't be consumed by something outside of you if you keep looking inward. Mount Sinai was not shaken because it found something within itself, it shook because something so glorious, external of it, fell on it. That's what happens. When something heavier falls on something lighter, it shakes it, it crushes it, it moves it. You've got to stop looking at yourself for this. You've got to look unto something that's weightier than you, unto God, unto Jesus. Let's, let's do that right now. One thing in this passage that's easily missed is the meaning behind Mary anointing Jesus with fragrant oil. Wait, I thought we talked about that already. I thought Mary anointing Jesus with fragrant oil was was communicated that he's about to be king. That's true. But there's another occasion back then when someone would be anointed with fragrant oil. Do you know when? Who? A corpse that's about to be buried. Jesus himself alluded to this. Look at verse 7. When Judas rebuked Mary for anointing Jesus, Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. What does this tell us? that Jesus' kingly anointing and Jesus' humbling death is one of the same thing. He will be king in your life through his death. In other words, Jesus will never be a weighty, glorious presence that moves you. He will never be king in your life, ever, unless you understand the cross. See, in the ancient Near East, it was a normal practice for the servant of a king to be punished for the mistakes that the king made. If a king committed an offense, he would send his servants to pay for it all the time. What happened on the cross? That cultural norm was turned upside down. On the cross, Jesus says, In my kingdom, the king is the one who will pay for the faults of his servants. In my kingdom, the king is the one who will die and take the punishments for the wrongdoings of his people. How does Jesus resurrect you from your deadly slumber? By dying in your place. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The second Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he knew he was going to have to take his place in that tomb. You see, unless you see this, you truly grasp this, he will always just be another political or religious leader who wants power over you. You'll never trust him. You will never give him the unbelievably deep and broad and lengthy kind of allegiance that he asks unless you first see just how high and wide and broad and deep his love is for you. Unlike any other authority that's disappointed you in your life, he, the most powerful being in the universe, laid down his power for you. He didn't retaliate. He didn't fight back. He could have. Oh, he could have. He became weak and he died that you may live, that he may be king over you. Behold the God of the Bible. Behold the gospel. And if this gospel becomes real in your life, then finally, he'll no longer just be a concept to you. He'll shake you. Through believing in what the death of Christ means to you, you'll be brought to life like Lazarus. And I mean, you won't magically follow him perfectly, but if the gospel becomes real, it'll move you and you'll increasingly give him more and more authority and allegiance over your life. I mean, what can stop you if that's your motivation? What can stop Lazarus who's been raised from dead to life? What can stop Lazarus from following Jesus? What are you going to tell him? I'll kill you? He's been brought from dead to life. He'll just say, one with him, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. Do you realize, Christian, what happened to Lazarus is what happened to you too? Do you, is, that, is that real to you? Did that glory shake you yet? You want a life where your act of goodness and service to man is not fickle? but it's effective and steadfast and consistent, motivated more than just your inner conscience. You want to live a life where your act of goodness does not in any way lead to self-obsession or ego inflation. You want to live a life where your act of goodness leads people more than just to worldly comforts and secularism, but to Him, the source of true joy. Then your philanthropy can never be disconnected from your love of Christ. God's glory has got to be the thing that moves you to do good. Expose yourself to this gospel daily. Find the cross in every page of your Bible. Expose yourself to gospel-centered preaching. Expose yourself to gospel community. Be reminded of it because it's got to get real to you or else God will just be a concept and all your good deeds will be fickle. He will never be a transforming power experienced by you through his cross. A preacher once said, the real tragedy of the moralist my friends is their failure to appreciate that the gospel of transformation is far more powerful than the religion of prohibition god never ever ever advances his cause by the means of a moral majority but always by the means of a truly transformed minority you want him to stop just being a concept and be a transforming glory in your life then understand and grasp what actually happened on the cross how wide and high and deep his love is for you then awake O sleeper rise from the dead for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you walk out now with this attitude let him no longer be a concept too many years have passed by let it be real Look at the cross. Let's pray. Father, we can't experience this weight of glory unless you first shine it upon us, as Isaiah said. I beg you, Father, as we do this, you make us realize you are a king who died for his people. You are a king who gave us your life and won our trust by laying down your power. That now we can no longer be suspect of you and thinking as if you're just another political or religious authority that wants us to vote for him and give him power so that you can have more power for power's sake. You don't love your power more than you love us. Look at the cross. That's the proof. You laid it down that we may be with you. Father, let it shake us. Let this glory be weighty. Let us be tired of claiming to be a Christian, of going to church, of doing all the right things and feeling it to be a dry type of religiosity disconnected from the God quake that you said the gospel should bring. I beg you for this to be true in the lives of those that are here in this room today, that we may go out and give the rest of our lives every act of good, every moral deed connected transformed by your gospel In jesus name we pray amen